0: What I was thinking that girls' education has to be a women's issue is really absolutely wrong because equity is everyone's business. And even though the the world was showing me like differently with all these young men coming to volunteer and I was just so stuck in my view of the world. And it took me a long time to really recognize that it is so much more powerful for a young man to stand up in his village and say, every girl in
1: my village needs to go to school. Welcome to the season six of Outliers. I'm your host, Pankaj Mishra, and I'm really thrilled to be bringing this edition of Outliers in collaboration with The Times of India. Outliers is a series of freewheeling conversations with the ones who choose to take the road not taken often. It's about the crazy and the curious, those who dare to stand out and stand alone. Keep listening. The journey of outliers uh, in my experience, uh, you know, has been so fascinating and so humbling that every time I sit down for a conversation like this, uh, it's not just about learning, but it's also about realizing uh, some of the things that we often ignore uh, in in our own battles. And uh, I'm really thrilled today uh, to be sitting down with an outlier, uh, Safina Hussain, who is the founder of Educate Girls. Safina, welcome to this conversation.
0: Thank you, Pankaj. Um, thank you for inviting me. And last night I was telling my dad about the podcast and he said, Are you an outlier? <laughs> so uh, he definitely wasn't convinced that I should be on the show, but thank you nevertheless for asking me.
1: Let us start from the start. Like they say, Shuru se shuru karte hain," right? Uh, give us a sense of where you come from, Safina. Uh, give us a sense of growing up. Uh, give, a, give us some detail about what are the things that became foundational building blocks for you in in things that you did later in your life. Take me through that part.
0: Okay so you know I come from my mother's womb but I grew up in Delhi. I don't want to say I come from Delhi for you know a variety of reasons but no I grew up in Delhi um, and really a very 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 tough childhood. Uh, There was an immense amount of there was immense amount of uh, violence and abuse so very difficult extremely extremely difficult uh, circumstances that even to this day are very hard for me to kind of speak about and I think that was was really like I think the whole childhood was in a weird way it was about survival and yet there were patches of it that were so joyful because you still have a childhood and you still have friends and you can still you know uh, do things. So it's this—it's uh, a this sort of mix of of growing up uh, in a lot of sort of complex um, environment. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the all of these factors had a had a big impact. I dropped out after the twelfth grade. I could not continue my education. Um, And yet, you know, God works in mysterious ways and support comes to you from the most unusual of quarters. And uh, I was kind of lucky enough for that to happen for me. And I ended up uh, going to London and I ended up becoming the first person in my family to go to London School of Economics and study overseas. And, and, you know, and, and that completely sort of changed the trajectory of my life from a girl who grew up in Janta flats. I don't know if you know, uh, Delhi has, you know, the DDA flats and you have the HIG, which is high income group and the MIG, which is middle income group and LIG, which is low income group. And below that, you have something called a Janta flat, which is a one room tenement, not even a kitchen in there. Um, so we would cook in the in the corridor. And um, my entire childhood breakfast was just tea and two slices of bread to go from that to like living in London. <laughs> Was just an absolutely, absolutely transformative journey for me.
1: Wow, what a great start! I mean, uh, humbling. How how was that for you, uh, Safina? Going to London. Uh, what were the kind of lessons you carried with you uh, from the childhood that you are talking about? And uh, how was that overall experience of learning there? Uh, can you talk a little bit about? Then we will get to the next foundational blocks.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think uh, just the whole experience of living on your own in London, you know, the independence that you can as a young person um, to be able to, again, I think, I think what I did take from my childhood was a survival skill, you know, born survivor. To, so in London, I held every job possible from giving tuitions to other students, to working in the library, to working in Chinese restaurant as a waitress, to doing bookkeeping for small businesses, to... I mean, I, the, the list is endless, like the number of jobs that I, that I did as a student just to be able to pay rent and be able to survive. Um, but I think it really taught me a lot and ta- taught me so much about the power that we have within to really, whether it is in Janta Flats or whether you're living in London, that you can bring to the table. I think those skills then never leave you. <laughs> and to be unafraid, I think in some ways, you know, to be unafraid of change and to be unafraid of what may come because you kind of feel like the worst you've already seen. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's an important point you make, because uh, a lot of time, the scars that we carry with us or uh, you know, uh, the tough times that we carry with us can kind of uh, make us feel like a victim or it can be overwhelming. And so it's very difficult to come out of that, right? I, I wanted to ask you that. Like how did you keep at it Right. Uh, from, from where you came from? What drove you? What, what was the thing?
0: So I, I think I think if you are driven in some ways by trauma, it is a, a little bit it's not simplistic, right So in some ways that trauma or that experience or uh, that journey inspires you and drives you and gives you the sort of unusual sort of drive to kind of you know break through things. but also in other ways it paralyzes you. Mm-hmm. You're always coming to thing, uh, to things, to issues, to problems with a sense of hyper-vigilance. And so that holds you in good stead <laughs> to, to some extent, but I think internally, over time, it is very exhausting. And it's a uh, it kind of hollows you out as well, personally. So I think it's a high price to pay. Um, so yeah, I always see it as two sides of the coin. You know, it, it will drive you, but it will also eat you up. Uh, and it will also hollow you out in some ways. Because you can't actually be in hyper-vigilant mode your whole life. Yeah. So,
1: so, the, so the times... Follows you out. And I'm asking that question because I think there could be learning for all of us. The times when it does that to us, how do you battle it? Or how do you come out of it in, in, in your own experience?
0: I think, you know, again, I'm just, again, going to look back and say, how did, how did I get to it? Because I didn't get to it overnight. You know, it, it's been, and it is still a struggle and it's still a journey. But I think, uh, A, being aware of it is really the first step. Uh, really, I think, self-awareness about that. I think your coaches, your mentors, people you gather around you over time really help you sort of build that, right? Uh, So some of the things I feel like I wish I'd had a mentor, I wish I'd had a coach like really early on that would have helped me navigate some of these really difficult pieces. Um, And perhaps I would have gotten to the same destination, but with, you know, a little bit more ease with myself and with others around me. So I, I think that's really the way to kind of think about it is, how much support could I have had a little bit earlier?
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And, and and that is highly underrated as much as we talk about it because it we are fighting our own sometimes inhibitions and egos to kind of accept that, okay, we, we need help. And that, yeah, simply said, but not easy to practice. Uh, let's talk about... Uh, educate girls but, but more importantly let's talk about the events and your own thinking uh, leading up to that can you take me through that journey like right from that spark of an idea to realizing it to committing it take me through. don't miss out anything. <laughs>
0: um, so um, you know after I finished my degree after I finished London I moved actually to California I moved to San Francisco Uh, with two suitcases, one with my books and one with my clothes. And really, I wanted to see the world. I wanted to experience much more uh, than what I had seen before. I started my development sector journey in the Bay Area. And um, I was very lucky. I was the first employee for almost like this tiny little nonprofit startup. And being the first employee, I I really had the opportunity to, to grow it, scale it. And in 10 years, it was a health nonprofit. Um, I started with one program in Ecuador uh, and I ended with almost five countries, 250 program partners. So that was like my grounding and my learning the ropes in terms of the work. Um, and even though I didn't do education, I was really focused on working with communities. So I worked with the Shuar communities, their tribes in the Amazon jungle in Ecuador. So going and living away, you know, in the Amazon, working with tribes. Uh, I worked in Kailicha, which is the biggest township in South Africa. I worked in Bolivia. I worked in Mexico, Oaxaca, very indigenous areas. And and really that sort of international experience and very grassroots experience really taught me, you know, the the tools uh, of how do you do this? How do you mobilize communities? How do you solve problems? How do you get resources to the table, right, to to actually be able to do this work? So I think it was excellent, excellent uh, grounding. But it also made me realize that, you know, even though countries change and circumstances change, our problems are, there's so much similarity in how you approach things and how you identify problems and you want to solve them. Um, So with that, I, you know, I came back to India um, after a decade in the U.S., um, working across all these multiple countries. Um, and really at that blank slate point, I was like, what do I do now? And just looking at my own journey, girls education was truly like the most obvious choice for me to, to follow, like, you know, cause I'd seen it in my own personal journey and I'd really seen the transformative power of, of girls being educated. Um, and at that time I had no experience in education. So I went up to, uh, MHRD, I went to the ministry and I had a meeting with them and I said, I don't know anything, but. And girls' education, it's a big issue. The country is very, very, very big, right? You're talking about hundreds of thousands of villages. I said, where should I go? Just tell me that. Where should I go? And they gave me a list of 26 critical gender gap districts in education. This is where the enrollment between boys and girls was the widest, right? In enrollment. And nine of these were in the state of Rajasthan at that time. I'm talking about almost, you know, 15 odd years ago. And so I said, oh, great. Can you make an introduction? And, and then I you know, went to the Rajasthan government and said, you, know, you seem to have this. Why don't you give me your 50 worst villages? You have nothing to lose. Let me try. And let's see what, what can be done. Right? Um, and then I went to all the different nonprofit partners in the sector to learn from best practices. I went to UNICEF. I went to like, lots of community-based organizations and said, what should I do? What should I do? Teach me. And they came and they would come in and train and i started with just about some 15 odd people in the field and in in what the government the state government was saying was some of the 50 worst and most difficult areas for girls education um and, and ran and it was really at the heart of it was a community mobilization model you know really going talking to parents and and saying please but school, bhejiye, ye school hai we can get you enrolled, we'll do all the work at the back end. So really started from that. And um, the results were pretty good. So the government gave us 500 uh, uh, villages. The results of that evaluation were pretty good. So then they gave us a whole district. And for me, that district in my mind became the unit of replication because the problem had been described to me as these 26 critical gender gap districts. So I said, oh, great. If in my lifetime I can cover these nine districts, And if I can close the gender gap here, that would be a life well spent. And so really, that was the vision. And today we are in three states in Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh and UP. We're in approximately close to 20,000 villages. And essentially, um, what we're doing is we're going door to door in these villages and finding every single girl that's out of school. So it's a... it's a very heavy boots on the ground exercise. So if you go to Udaipur district, I would have, you know, our team would have knocked on every single door in Udaipur district. And you can, you know that we've done it because you'll see our logo on, on, on top of every household. Um, and so it's really, it's making sure that no girl gets left behind because I've seen it in my own childhood. And I, every time something happens, I'm hyperventilating thinking, what if we miss somebody? What if a girl does And so the approach is, again, very much governed by your own journey and by your own experience. Uh, So we do that and then make sure that once we find these girls that they're enrolled in school. um, And then we do everything possible to make sure that they stay in school and learn. So we run learning activities. We run life skills activities to build their confidence. Uh, We work with the school management's to make sure the infrastructure is girl friendly. Is there a toilet for her? Is there a boundary wall, et cetera? So that's in a nutshell. where we are today <laughs> and how
1: it's kind of grown. More than the nutshell, that, that's quite a lot. And I'm really amazed at what you have done so far. Uh, I want to take a step back. Um, you said you spent uh, a decade uh, in nonprofit in the US, and, and you have had your own learnings in terms of what works, what doesn't work. You talked about the tools from community building to, to everything. Can you talk a bit about when you came and you, you started building out Educate Girls? Uh, what worked and what did not in terms of your own learnings? Uh, Because a lot of times when we are attacking a problem in a new place, there's a lot of learning and unlearning both, right? So so can you talk a little bit about what worked and what didn't? Uh,
0: So I think some of the things that I had learned and that worked um, were really, I think I had learned very early on that um, whenever you start with something, people go and say, "What is your mission? What is your vision, etc., etc." I don't actually look at any of that. I, I first say, you know, let's just sit down and let's define. And we should be able to. And you, you and I can do this right now. Okay, let's just close our eyes and imagine visually what the problem that I'm trying to solve looks like. So, for example, in the case of educate girls, if you close your You can imagine this little girl who gets up first thing in the morning, she's cooking, she's cleaning, she's looking after her little sibling, she's fetching water, she's grazing the goats, and she's the last one to go to bed. The problem is visually really clear. You and I are aligned on the problem that we want to solve. And then you have to align on the vision of success. What does success look like? So if you again close your eyes and you imagine you will see this little girl in her school uniform in her pigtails and her ribbons and she's walking to school with her school bag. She's in school, she's in the classroom, she's learning, she's sitting and having lunch with her friends, Uh, you know? So, and the minute you're aligned on that and I think if you have a common vision of success and a common understanding of the problem, that's the beginning point. And I think I've learned this over and over and over again is that, whatever you start. And that worked really well for us in, in terms of Educate Girls. I think we could very, that was one lesson that held me in good stead. So we've been able to scale rapidly, but if you ask me and you ask our team Balika volunteer, like in, in let's say in Chitrakoot village in UP, they will all still describe the same problem and the same vision of success. And that allows you to scale and that allows you to bring a lot of other people to the table. To be able to solve that problem with you because Lone Rangers, you know, you can't really do much. So that was one thing that really, really, really worked well for me. Now, coming to one of the things that didn't work so well. And, you know, for the longest time, I thought because the whole um, model hinges on community ownership. So it just really hinges on the fact that it has to be local agents who have to run this mission, right? So we have Team Balika volunteers, these are young, educated passionate uh, individuals from the same village who are aligned with our mission who say, yeah, you know, we'll take you. Let's go together to every door. And they have all the knowledge. Um, But, you know, when I was starting out, I really believed that the only people who could do this were young women. And every time we put an ad out for Team Balika volunteers, so many men landed up. So many men wanted to volunteer. And young men, educated young men from the same villages. And I was like, you know, we're failing, we're doing something wrong. We're just not getting it right. And I think it took me a long time and I had to just almost slap myself into, into recognizing this, that what I was thinking, that girls' education has to be a women's issue is really absolutely wrong because equity is everyone's business. Wow. And even though the, the the world was showing me like differently with all these young men coming to volunteer and I was just so stuck in my... View of the world, and it took me a long time to really recognize that it is so much more powerful for a young man to stand up in his village and say, "Every girl in my village needs to go to school," um, and that's something that I think I, I failed at for a long time before it, that light bulb finally that like, came on in my head, saying equity is really
1: for all of us. Um, that is beautiful. I mean, that, that's really amazing. And thanks for being so candid about it because it's it's an important building block. Uh, you know what you what you mentioned about the power of imagination and, and, and visualizing it is so true, Safina. I mean, even this 150 odd conversations I have had with people as part of this series, this stands out. Uh, the ability to imagine, like you said, how would it look like? Uh, sometimes people could, could call it you know, daydreaming or being too wishful about it. Uh, it also means being honest about it, right? Uh, you know, so so when, when, when you are imagining, how do you ensure that it is not daydreaming? And you know, I, I don't know if my question is making sense to you, but I'm just trying to understand how it works for you.
0: Yeah, no, so I, I think you're right. And I think founders, essentially, their main job is to imagine, is to imagine this vision, this imagine what could possibly happen. But I think, um, and my board says this, <laughs> you know, I think when um, the reality check is definitely required, because my board will say this, they're like, oh, these founders, they just want new toys to play with. Because that's what they like doing. They just like to build and imagine. Uh, and every time you see a problem, you're like, oh my God, I could imagine a solution for this. And therefore you, have, you need to have a really strong sort of mission aligned uh, board and governance and others around you who would provide that reality check, um, I think. Because you do need a balance. Everything in the universe is all about balance, right? And you need the balance between that unbridled, you know, audacious imagination, um, and then somebody who says, hey, great idea, but let's just really think about this. Um, <laughs> which can be very painful for founders. <laughs> we don't like doing that. But if you don't do that, then I think, and we see this all the time, right? In for-profit, non-profit sectors, you see what, what we call, you know, founderitis. And that's when the founders have to be like pushed out, kicking and screaming because they just, you know, that, that's where the disbalance has sort of happened.
1: Yeah, you're, you're so right. And then that's when some people say that founders are on steroids. Of course, um, that's mostly used for the funded, startups, but this is a very different journey in, in that, right? Uh, and, and, and yeah, you are right. I mean, it, it makes sense to have that check. Uh, but uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, building the next set of leaders? What have been some of the learnings of, you know, failures and things that worked out for you? Because, a mission, you know, while such missions that you have, hopefully they all outlive us and and, and you clearly, but how do you keep this alive for a long time? What does it take to build built to last?
0: Yeah, and that's a really good question. It's one of my, a little bit of my pet peeves as well in terms of how um, our sector and even the for-profit sector really sees talent in some ways. And I have real difficulty with some of the sort of established view of of what you know talent looks like or what the next generation of leaders looks like etc so i'll give you an example of what i mean by this so when educate girls was at about 5,000 villages or something i was really worried okay i was worried i was like are we just replicating or are we still having value add for that last girl right because that scale I can't like physically see things, and the hyper vigilance at the back of my mind still wants me to see everything, right? Uh, and know that there is a result that's happening for that girl, because otherwise, you know, why am I doing this? Um, and so the the thing as a founder again, you know, what we uh, built and we designed and we brought a lot of partners to the table to deliver was the world's first development impact bond in education. Mm. And so for now, it's an innovative financing tool. And we brought it in service of girls education, not because we wanted new money or anything like that. But really, I wanted that when I scale, it's a payment by results. A a development impact bond or a Dib is essentially a payment by results. It's not a bond you see in the markets, et cetera. But the whole idea was that if I could build an organization that could get paid purely on results, then whatever scale I got to of 1 million or 10 million girls, I would at least be satisfied that yes, we were still having results for that last girl child. Yeah. And I'm going to come back to the issue of talent. I haven't forgotten in in going down this thing, but imagine this is the first time it's being done in the world. You know, there's social impact bonds that have been done in us, UK, et cetera. They're like, this is really complex. This is so difficult, blah, 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 blah. And so then came this whole issue with my board and my donors as to who leads this project because the whole world's eyes are going to be on it. And it has been, it has been one of the most written about transactions, you know, globally uh, in this sort of impact investing universe. And so they were right in really worrying about this. And then they were like, oh, I have this person from this management consulting background, very smart, you must take him. Oh, I have this person from Harvard who's just come back, absolutely best person to lead it, you know. And so everybody's definition of talent is this sort of ivy you know it's very narrow in terms of scope as to what do we see in our mind's eye when we think of phenomenal talent and i had such a massive fight such a massive fight i can't tell you because i chose uh, somebody called Vikram Solanki and Vikram Solanki comes from Pali district in Rajasthan his family is still farming in Pali district in Rajasthan And he had joined us as a data entry, you know, sort of MIS officer and has grown through the ranks. If you meet him, Pankaj, one of the most inspirational leaders, okay, cannot make a PowerPoint, cannot, you know, give you the whole gyan in English and big words or whatever. But I chose him because I know he is the guy who can get it done. And such a fight. And obviously the development impact bond was phenomenally successful. Um, 25% result in the first year, 50% in the second year, 160% of our target we delivered by the end of the third year, which is like insane. 92% of the girls were in school and staying as validated by a third party evaluator. And everything I know hinged upon making the right decision on who's the talent leader. So I think we have to change the goggles we wear when we look at talent and we look at people because they are the ones who will take this organization into, into the future and uh, who are really the pillars of getting this done. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's that's kind of my view on what does the next in line look like? It looks like a million Vikram Solankis. It looks like uh, a million people rising up from the same villages, from the same areas to take this forward.
1: This is also very fascinating because I think it also uh, it is quite bold and and risk-taking on on part of a founder as well because uh, the board uh, I'm sure you rely on people who fund these projects and so on and you one morning you get up and say this is the way I want to do Uh, a lot of time it is intuition a lot of time it is I don't know what it is but why what can you talk a little bit about the founder's mentality? Like when you, when you make calls, these calls, what do you go by? What is your compass?
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a really good point. I think because however much theory and executive education programs you, you attend stuff, at the end of the day, I find like in that moment, I am definitely, how does it feel inside? the minute there's discomfort, I tend to hold back. I'm like, let me think about this. And I want to reflect on why am I feeling this discomfort with this particular decision or with this particular... So I think a lot of founders work like that. I think we work a lot more intuitively. I haven't done an MBA. I didn't even know all this jargon of, you know, when I first started out, I was like, what is HR? What are they supposed to do? I was like, who are all these different, different people I'm supposed to have? Then a donor said, you need an L&D department. I was like, what? Like, so we don't have all of that at the back of it. So what we do rely on is, I think, very much intuition, very much that, you know, really listening to yourself and saying, how does this feel? Because uh, most of the time it will lead you on the right path or it will lead you at least to say, am I even diagnosing this problem right? Because sometimes what you're feeling discomfort with or what is on the table is really just a symptom of something way back and, and the root causes elsewhere.
1: Is there something more specific you use when you decide or when you make a decision? Because, uh, and and see, all of us, and even the people I have been talking to, um, it's it's like, is there a litmus test? Is is there something that tells you, while we all have that, you know, we we grow up reading what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, but what is that for you? What is that equivalent for you?
0: Yeah, that's a really important question. Because I think as a founder, you can rely on. On your instinct and intuition and whatever else fuddy duddy words you want to give it, but I think at the end of the day, if you're running an organization that's in 20,000 villages, you have 15,000 you know Team Balika volunteers on the ground. You have a team of 2,200 people that is delivering every day on the front lines right you need a better framework than just saying it's my intuition and i think for us uh, the way we do it is we really every meeting we have or every critical decision making meeting we have we imagine that there is a girl sitting on the table we imagine that most vulnerable out of school girl who if we didn't act in her interest would become a child bride or would be trafficked or would be you know lost to child labor and I think that's what centers us. And then every decision you're taking, you're really saying, is this in the interest of the girl child?
1: Yeah. So no, that, that's very well said. I, and that explains it beautifully. And it this can be applied in everything we do, uh, looking at, at that. Very nice, Safina. This is really helpful. Final couple of questions. Uh, one of the things I wanted to understand from you that, uh, of course, you... You use technology and analytics. I, I I understand now. Can you talk a little bit about the experience? Because a lot of us tend to put tech in the driver's seat, and then you can sometimes get blinded by data. Or so so. What's been your experience like? What works and what doesn't when you are using technology?
0: Yeah, I think again to put it very simply. Then I'll give you a couple of examples. I think. Uh, to put it very simply, everything needs to be in service of that girl child. So the data and the tech on their own are of zero interest to me. But if they help me to further my mission for that child, then it is really, really useful. Um, so, for example, right now, um, we use, you know, because we go door to door, right? And we have been since the day we started, we go door to door and we, uh, we collect uh, a lot of data. So we have data from over 5 million households, right? And because we used to work an entire unit of districts, which means I have full census type of data, a household level. It's not like sampling and here and that. So it's beautiful data that I can layer other publicly available data on. And really patterns begin to emerge. And you can use a lot of advanced analytics, machine learning type stuff. And what that has shown us is um, really broadly, just, you know, uh, pre-pandemic obviously, that 5% of villages in India have 40% of the out-of-school girls. And now this is, so my mission right now for the next five years is to saturate these 5% of the villages because I know they have the highest burden of -of out-of-school girls and possibly the most vulnerable out-of-school girls, right? Uh, And so this is just one example of how the data and technology is really in service of my mission. And my thinking is now saying, um, you know, can we use the same sort of advanced analytics and predictive modeling to, to predict for child marriage, the risk of child marriage, the risk of school dropout? There's so much that you can kind of do uh, with that sort of data and and technology, but it must be in service of
1: that girl. Wow. Again, yeah, <laughs> this is really important point, Sabina, and and, and very well illustrated as well. Uh, final question. This is one of my favorite questions I ask everyone it is... Uh, what is your science fiction view of what you are building? Like, <laughs> how wild can you get, you know, a decade out or a hundred years, you know, uh, out, you know, and, and this is one question that I, I really like asking. So, you know, please ignore if I'm being over enthusiastic, but what is that for you?
0: So, my, are you asking like, in terms of my desire, what is my, <laughs> my view? Um, Really, I think um, for me, I want to see every, every child. Uh, and right now, the data doesn't look good. Like if you had to look at like some areas in sub-Saharan Africa, even for girls to achieve primary education, it would take 99 years. And I don't want to wait that long, right? So my big vision is really that, you know, magically, let's say, uh, tonight we go to bed and somebody sprinkles this magic powder all over the country, right? all over India everyone who's there and they wake up in the morning and they believe that their son that's my dream Mm -hmm. you know because everything that we deal with today that we fight for is because we somehow view that the boat is and a girl is a liability somewhere we believe that you know uh, if a guest comes home the daughter should run to the kitchen and fetch water so, it's really as basic as that. We don't see them as equal to us. We don't see them as the same. And that's the root of all of our problems. And I think so, that's my sort of science fiction
1: dream. It's uh, so, so amazing you, you articulate this way, Sapina. And actually, it reflects on the society we live in and we are building that for something like this, it has to be viewed as science fiction. Uh, it has to be thought as a magic that happens overnight. I mean, that itself reflects, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I must say that, you know, I mean, this, is, this reflects bad on us as society, as, as, as people who are shaping the society. So as much as I believe, you know, and, and, and I love what you said, but I reflect back and I wonder why is this science fiction and magic? Uh, but I know what you are doing uh, brick by brick is hopefully uh, going to get us there, even if it sounds magic. I think what you have done so far itself sounds magical. So I I truly believe in the power of magic that you are uh, living. Uh, All the best, uh, Sabina, and then Godspeed with everything you are doing. It's such a joy to have this conversation with you.
0: Thank you, Pankaj. It was just absolutely fabulous having this chat with you today. Thank you.